Shopify grows your business no matter how far or big you grow. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether you're selling your fans' next favorite shirt or an exclusive piece of podcast merch, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash income now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Welcome to another edition of the Wonder of Parenting podcast. My name is Tim Wright, and I serve as your host for the podcast. And I have the privilege every time we get together to interview my good friend, Dr. Michael Gurian, who is just such a wealth of information, isn't he? And uh, how about a round of applause for Michael? Oh. Let's just all around the, the world right now. Everybody's <laughs> applauding for you. And for uh, Tim. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you. Thank you. I love asking questions. I, this is such interesting stuff to me. And uh, if you're listening to us for the first time, we're really grateful to have you. And uh, if you've not subscribed yet, you can go to wonderofparenting.com, and there's a place to subscribe. There's also information there about different resources we have. And uh, we want to say a big thanks to our sponsors, the Center of Place of Hope up in the Seattle area, and particularly with these topics we've been talking about with uh, sexual trauma last week and today and then trauma next week. Uh, those kinds of resources are so helpful for us as parents and as adults when we're dealing with the emotional stuff in our lives. So if you ever need just a place to begin, try the Center, a place of hope. There's a link there, and we are grateful for their sponsorship. They keep us on the air. And a big thanks to Greg Jantz and his staff uh, up in the Seattle area. Mm. So last week, uh, we did a, a podcast uh, because Michael's got a new book out called The Stone Boys, and we're going to just review that very quickly. I do want to say to those of you who are listening to us for the first time, if this is your first podcast with us, uh, this is going to probably be one of the first and only times that I recommend to you that you stop listening and go back and listen to the one prior and go back and listen to number 59. Now, you'll probably still get some stuff out of 60 without 59, but po podcast 59 really set the table for what we're going to do today. And Michael told the story, a very moving story, about the sexual trauma he experienced when he was 10 years old. And he's written a book about it, uh, a novel that, that starts with that experience. And, uh, and today, then, what we're going to do is we're going to go uh, a bit more practical now and talk to parents about how do we recognize sexual trauma in our kids, how do we protect them uh, from some of the kind of things that Michael experienced. But Michael, just very quickly, give us a synopsis of The Stone Boys, why you chose that title, what the book's about, who the audience is for. Okay, yeah, The Stone Boys, uh, I have written, uh, published two novels before, a book of short stories before, books of poetry, so if some people know me just from nonfiction, just know that I'm not a pretender, let's say, in the area of fiction. I am I am decent at it, uh, and, and I have published quite a bit of it in the past. So, uh, But this book, 
um, you know, nothing like this. This is this is a book that started out as an adult novel. It started out at around three to four hundred pages as I was writing it. I started writing it at eighteen, but gradually it moved and became this much shorter, a very tight uh, young adult novel um, that crosses over to adult. So, um, uh, and it's it's for uh, anyone you know, thirteen or older would be I think the right age. Some twelve year olds, but. 13 or older. Um, and it, it's one of the characters is my foil. Ben is is me to some extent, not all. Uh, and so I'm telling some of my story through him and he confronts a bully and some other characters and, and there's this intense sort of thriller novel that occurs. Um, so I wanted to write it not only because I wanted to write it, it was a story inside me, you know, my soul had to write it, um, but also because it, it really does fit with my advocacy for children, for boys. Um, I, I have talked about sexual abuse of both boys and girls in my, in my nonfiction, but I wanted to write, um, you know, a fictional narrative that provided a kind of template for youth themselves to be trying to figure out what has happened to them um, and if nothing has happened to them, to become sensitive or more sensitive and empathic toward people for whom this sort of trauma has occurred, their their classmates, and then to be in schools so that it can be read in schools, you know, so classes can discuss it, and then also so for adults to, because I think it'll help them to see back on some of the trauma they experienced and to talk to others about it. So it's written as a as an intense thriller novel, a page turner. But I do have these other intentions underneath that to, to use it to help people. So last week, uh, Michael shared his story with us uh, of being a 10-year-old boy sent to therapy because he was uh, having some challenges both at home and school, correct? Yeah. And, um, and it turned out that the therapist was a predator. And, um, and it wasn't until you turned 18 that your parents actually found out about this. Right. Now... I recognize that our world is a little different. Uh, this was in the 1960s, and we're, we're almost hypervigilant to some of these things. We, we talk about a lot, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we're any safer today than we were back in the 1960s. Um, these things still happen. And uh, so one of the questions that I have, just to get us started, is um, what signs were you exhibiting that maybe your parents picked up on but didn't quite connect the dots, and or what signs should we as parents or grandparents be looking for that suggest that our sons, let's kind of keep it to sons for this one, have been sexually traumatized or are being sexually traumatized? Okay. All right. Hold the second one. You may have to remind me of the second one because uh, the first one may take a little while, which is signs that I was, that I was um, showing that yes. might have been missed. So let me. I'm going to start with the personal, and then let's move out into the more clinical. Um, the The personal is, and, and I want to say to people, the personal is confusing because my signs could have been signs of something else, and um, in fact, because of my complex um, boyhood. They were in part signs of something else. They were signs of child abuse. They were signs of having been bullied. And also could be signs of having been sexually traumatized at 10. And this is a confusion that I, I just always want to talk to parents about because when we read, especially if we read a blog or a short article or something, you know, the signs are listed out, uh, isolation, depression, which I'm going to list. Those signs are listed out. And then, you know, we look for those signs and the signs are listed under the context of 
maybe your child was sexually abused, right? But those exact same signs could be from something else. And um, maybe your child was not sexually abused and your child is isolating for another reason. So I want to be honest with people that the signs that we give could be signs of anything. And, um, you know, and, and, and there's only one set of signs that we could localize to sexual trauma and be pretty much sure this child was sexually traumatized. And these are going to be sexual signs. So I'll, I'll work back from those uh, and, then, and then work back. In my particular case, I actually was very shy sexually. I was not promiscuous. And um, I was relatively sh- shy sexually. So one sign that some boys will um, show is that they will actually become promiscuous pretty quick. They will um, do, do some strange things, like at 13 or 14, want to take their clothes off in front of other people, right, trying to kind of reveal themselves sexually because they had their clothes off with someone else, right, when they were too young, and um, that got imprinted. So that and they could become promiscuous. We could later think they're sexually addicted. That can happen. Um, none of these are definite for hundred percent, but these are possibilities. And some of them, like me, can go even more inward and become very shy. And I really didn't want people to know about you know my body. Uh, I was very ashamed. Um, so I I lost my virginity at nineteen, which in the seventies wasn't really that late. But um, my first five years of trying to be sexual were terrible. I, I had to go back into therapy because I, I was so messed up and just didn't understand what to do, how, how to accomplish intimacy with it, how to give pleasure. You know, I mean, the whole thing, I didn't understand it. Um, and that's, those signs are very hard for parents to see because that's all, you know, an internal private to the guy. So, um, so if, if there's going to be a sign uh, absolutely of sexual abuse, it's probably getting in the, in the area of, you know, of sexual intent, of promiscuity and of showing off the body and all of that. Um, outside of that sign, I had some other signs that, but they could have been from something else. Um, I did sometimes tend to isolate myself. And that's a sign that everyone should look for, isolation. Um, uh, but, but I'll move into the clinical in a moment. I also picked a lot of fights. I got very angry. I was constantly angry with people. And um, uh, I had a hair trigger. Um, I didn't beat people up. I wasn't. I was kind of a weakling kid. I wasn't physically hurting people. But I would be. They would say something. I would overreact. You know, I'd get him angry immediately. So you know, a hair trigger. Um, uh, and of course, therefore, I became very isolated because no one liked me. <laughs> you know, so then I'd be more isolated. Um, uh, and the isolation is is an unconscious internal gesture that abused kids often will, um, uh, they'll try to create, they'll try to create more isolation because of, of shame. Um, I started marijuana very early. Uh, I don't know if that was because of the sexual abuse or if it was because I was in Hawaii during my early teen years and it was everywhere there. And it was the seventies, you know, I don't really know why, but, uh, quite often, uh, kids who have been sexually abused will move towards some kind of self-medication. So I wasn't really a drinker, but I could get access to marijuana in that era. So I was smoking way too much marijuana. I did stop later, thankfully. Um, uh, so that's that's a potential sign, substance abuse. Um, uh, and then uh, I would say the last one I'll look at here is uh, 
is just straight depression, and then we can switch to the clinical. I was on and off depressed throughout my um, teen years, uh, even well into my 20s, and I still have winter depression now because I have a genetic factor for that, but I was just sort of overall depressed and constantly fighting through depression during about a 10 to 15 year period. And certainly the 10 years that I was in therapy from 16 to 26, I was consistently in therapy and I was battling depression through that time. So those are some things that are personal to me that I was doing. And, um, and then should we move to the clinical? Yeah, please. Okay. So then for someone, so I'm going to use those as segues. So if you're a, a I'll start with parents of kids, and then I'll move to if you're an adult or relating to an adult. I want to say that that the folks, um, males who have been sexually abused, I'm going to stay with males for this podcast, males who have been sexually abused um, uh, over a period of time, so it's a repeated trauma, um, uh, they can often succeed quite well, and this will be based on their resilience genetics and things like that, which you asked me about if you want, um, they can often succeed quite well, you know, for instance, at work. They can climb to the top of corporations. They're inventors. They can be very successful. Not all, but some can be very successful. But the place where it's hard to hide the, um, the results of the abuse is in relationships. Um, if, if we are carrying forward into our adult life unresolved trauma, uh, any unresolved trauma, but we're going to stick with sexual abuse right now, unresolved sexual abuse trauma, if we are carrying that forward, we will most likely have difficulties uh, mating, staying mated, you know, in other words, uh, marrying, staying married, raising kids, um, being there for our spouse, giving and taking love, you know, loving and being loved. Um, and it will it will probably bleed over, even if we're successful. It'll probably bleed over into work relationships, into friendships. Um, our the core self is distorted, and we're always fighting an inner battle with 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 demons of intimacy. And so, if we don't resolve it, we keep projecting onto others. So, I'll start with an adult. If you if you are an adult who has been sexually abused, you can look at and discern where that is going on in your life. And if you're relating to someone who you even think had a hint of sexual abuse as a kid and you, and you know that he is having trouble in relationships, uh, that's probably a wedge in or a way in um, because he probably is. That, that intimacy is distorted and he, it's very difficult for him to be really intimate for any prolonged period of time. Um, so that is a, like a first sign I would give. Start looking at relationships and seeing what's happening in them. Um, now, he could have uh, negative relationships for many reasons, not just sexual abuse. So this is why I gave that caveat that a lot of the things that we think of for sexual abuse are actually – could be for something else. But if we're looking clinically at, then at a, at a teen who's been sexually abused earlier in life, we, we want to look at depression and isolation. So look for your son uh, being depressed. Look for him isolating himself in his room. Look for – uh, having a friend, but then losing the friend and now having no friends. Uh, look for him um, uh, becoming sex addicted, on the other hand, or, um, you know, porn addicted, uh, masturbation addicted. You know, all of those things um, are definitely possibilities. Um, and it is one of the first questions I ask when clients come in who and their parents say, my 
my son is addicted to porn, you know, the first thing I'm going to ask, as I think any practitioner would, is were you sexually abused? Was he sexually abused? Um, so you can become addicted to porn for other reasons, but that's one you're going to going to want to look at. Uh, also, we're going to look at that anger and that rage. Really look at this personality type of this of this boy. How is he set up personality wise? And and is it being overdone? Is he constantly enraged? Is he constantly has a hair trigger? Is he getting mad all the time? Um, it may well be that he was sexually abused. Um, may not be, but it may well be. And if you put together three of these and you see something going on sexually, like with porn or promiscuity or anything like that, and you see isolation, depression, um, and you see you know anger, uh, I would say those three might well indicate that he was traumatized sexually when he was young. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Our family has grown. Welcome to the world, Hannah baby. Introducing a new collection, Hannah Soft, made with Tencel. It's so breathable, with stretchy comfort for all of baby's first moments. And it's cool and gentle on their skin all year round. Entrusted Hannah quality for your most precious gift. Hannah Soft, made to last. Shop now at hannahanderson.com. So let's say that you you see this happening in your 10-year-old son, uh, your 15-year-old son. What would you recommend parents do? Oh, well, I was, I'm was i more looking at the 15-year-old. Um, you know, I'm looking more now he's a teen. Uh, it's. I'm glad you reminded me. I'm sorry about that, about if he's 10. It is so hard. <laughs> it is. I cannot tell you how hard it is to know, you know, that 9 or 10-year-old is being sexually abused um, because because that that child is trying to function and is functioning inside the system uh relatively well at 10 and and you would say no no what do you mean well what i mean is remember he's not hit with hormones yet some of these other things that are going to kick in later like the anger like his his the, the promiscuity or porn addiction these things they're not kicking in yet right because he's not adolescent yet so this is a 10-year-old who may well disguise everything, and, um, uh, and you may not see it until, until later. But if that, 10-year-old, if that 10-year-old goes from being a happy kid to being, being a depressed kid, and if it happens over a period of like a month or two, then um, uh, and if you know that he's had access to someone who could have been a predator, um, you know, I would get right on that. I mean, that, that would mean you're getting an early sign that he, he is being or has been recently sexually abused, and you have the chance to get in there right away. Um, so so that's, gonna, that's an equation. Depression or anxiety or some, some new sign now of something you haven't seen before or an amplification. Like maybe he was always oh, a little nervous, but now he's really anxious, and he's only 10 or he's 11. Um, he, he maybe was drew dark pictures before, in art class, but now he's depressed. Okay, that's an amplification, let's say. Um, 
so you look at that and then you look immediately, does he have access to or do, does a predator have access to him? If he's online, of course, you and I have talked about this, no 10-year-old should be online. But if he is online, then you got to look online. Or if he's in some organization that you know, has a female or a male who could be a predator, then you say, oh, wow, I got to talk to someone about this. You're going to ask the 10-year-old, uh, he may or may not disclose. Mm. But if you're, you know, because it, it's just so confusing for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's not even a sexualized being yet, and he's been sexualized. So it's very, very confusing. Um, hopefully he will disclose. But if he does not, uh, I would warn parents against really badgering him. Uh, what I would do is is get the community involved to try to ascertain what has happened. I mean, first you do start with a kid, but then, you know, get the community involved, get mentors, his teachers, his coach, or, uh, you know, mom, dad, uh, older siblings even. Get other people involved to try to develop a plan to figure out if he is being or has been sexually abused and and move on it relatively quickly. Um, and, and again, this is especially if he's had access to someone who could be a predator um, because we want to remember he could be becoming depressed for you know, some other biological reasons. Yes, right. So but regardless, if, the, if, the, if these things are happening, something's going on. It may or right. may not be sexual trauma, and we're going to cover a more right. general trauma next week. But right. uh, So, uh, you know, I think about your story, and, um, you know, your parents sent you to somebody who was supposed to help you, and, and this guy did just the opposite. Um, if if we're if we're entrusting our boys into the care of a a professional a, a counselor a psychiatrist, what are some things that we can do going in to protect our sons and to protect us from what you just experienced? Well, one thing we can so I'll deal with the psychiatric profession, which I know well. Um, a, a number of boys have been abused, of course, in the church, and. And um, I, I have worked with them. I'm going to make some suggestions there, but um, I've worked with them as adults, as men, and I'll make some suggestions. But it's not a world I'm going to know as well. You know, I mean, it's really, it's really a world that priests are going to know better about how to protect there. Um, but I'll make some suggestions. I'll start with anyone in a who's a physician. Anyone you send your son to or take your son to who's in the medical profession, the psychiatric uh, mental health profession. With, with folks in that profession, I, I really do think parents should be quizzing, should be asking questions of, and, and know the laws in your state and know, know what you can do. Because, for instance, in my state, parents can be involved and should be involved in the therapy of their son. Um, uh, and up till 13. At 13, some other laws kick in. And I think 13 is too young, actually. Um, I think parents should be allowed to be involved longer. But in my state, it's 13. So learn what it is in your state and, and be involved in that therapy. Believe the therapist when the therapist says, you know, you're not going to be involved in these four sessions. I'm doing these four sessions with your son. You know, that's, that's true and important. Uh, it's important for the therapist to see the boy on his own. But at the same time, you know, you're an advocate. So so also set up with a the therapist. Yeah, but we want some family therapy too. Um, and that's something that, that makes it pretty difficult for that, that person. And by the way, it could be a female. Mine was a male, but, you know, females also are predators on young boys. Um, uh, you know, it makes it difficult for that predator to operate because we are constantly involved in, in the therapy and in the sessions. 
Um, so I would say that's a way to empower yourself in the process. Also, uh, just just you know, ask around about this person, get referrals, learn about this person, um, see if the person knows how to work with adolescent boys. You know, um, ask all those questions and do good research on this person so that you know, you know, sort of more about this person. And if, and if possible, talk to another family whose son has seen this person. So, you know, you're basically doing your homework to see if this person is, is you know, good for your son. And, and in talking to other people about it, it's a kind of interpersonal Yelp in a way, um, y- you know, you might find that a family says, I don't know. I don't know about that person. I don't, I don't know that that person is good. And they may not know why they don't know, but they may say, well, my son was in therapy with that person for two months, and I don't know. It seemed weird. Well, then you're going to avoid, avoid that guy so, or that woman. So those are, those are ways you're going you're gonna to protect yourself, but you can't be in the room with the boy all the time. So uh, it is absolutely appropriate um, to be asking him what happened in therapy mm-hmm. when he's in that age group of 9, 10, 11. Now, when he gets to be a teen and older, obviously the rules change. But um, in that age group, absolutely fine to ask him. And if he says nothing, then, you know, you let that go for a while. And then then um, you say, well, look, I don't, know what, I don't want to know what you're talking about. But I'm just going to make sure Did uh, there was no touching, right? There was no stranger touch. There was no bad touch, you know. And these, this is all language every 10-year-old knows now, bad touch. There was no bad touch, right? Oh, mom, there was no bad touch, you know. Mm-hmm. But that's fine. You're doing your job. But again, uh, you know, like in your situation, um, you got a doctor who, who's, who's uh, well, I, I, you know, I just want to make sure your stomach's okay. And, and you're a 10-year-old boy t- trusting the doctor. And how, how do you help a, a child determine what's bad touch and what's okay touch when it comes to, say, a, a person in power like a doctor? Well, in that case, yeah. I mean, now, remember, this was this was the 1960s. Now, yep. I think every parent would be empowered to ask questions. Like, my parents didn't ask. No one thought to ask. But, sure. yeah, if I'm a parent now, even if the kids – well, first of all, the kid's seeing a doctor. The way it's set up now, unless it's a psychiatrist, he's not going to see that person very much. Right. right? It's just going to be one one visit or two. So, so predation is generally not going to happen with a physician. But if it's a psychiatrist or counselor, um, uh, it's still fine to ask. It's fine to ask to, to say, was there any bad touch? Because he you, he's going to that doctor, an MD, he's going to that MD for psychotherapy. He's not going to the MD to be touched. And, yep. and so we're saying that to our kids. You know, that's an important message to our kids. Um, uh, if we suspect anything or just we want to be vigilant. We don't have to say this thousands of times, but we say it a few times. Remember, you're going to him to talk to him. So if he touches you, we need to know about it. And, and so that's the way to handle that. We had a situation here in the Phoenix area not too long ago where uh, a female teacher was arrested because she was a predator toward a, I believe it was a, a 12-year-old boy, 13-year-old boy, and uh, had a sexual relationship with him. And obviously she's very, very sick, this woman, right. or a predator, what, how, whatever language you want to use. She's sick, yeah. Yeah, and um, it, it was fascinating to watch all that was taking place here. And uh, one of the discussions that came up was the sentence that she received, which was much lighter than the sentence a male teacher would have received had he been a predator toward a young girl. And uh, some of the, the challenges in our culture we still have in in looking at uh, these all of these issues and, and really being advocates for our boys the way that we are for our girls. Well, yeah, it's called the the female legal advantage. I mean, there is it is one of the areas of um, of 
what we call female privilege or female advantage in, in the court system, uh, the court systems, f females have a, a significant advantage. And um, uh, that would be a topic for another day because right. that advantage exists in, in, in family court, it exists in criminal court, it exists in civil court. I mean, it, it exists everywhere. And it's a, you know, I'm of two minds about it. I mean, I mainly think we should be equitable and, and have gender equity and we should be, um, you know, we, sh we should be sentencing people for the same crime the same amount, just like we should be paid the same amount for the same work, that gender should not matter. Uh, but, I, but I understand why this female legal advantage occurs and um, I just think it would be a larger topic. <laughs> yeah, I, my, my point was just to say, to kind of bring us back to our last podcast, that we just don't seem to recognize boy sexual trauma the way that oh, we do right. girl sexual trauma. And that was just an example of that. In fact, her lawyer tried to argue that the boy had seduced her, which, of course, is ridiculous uh, because there's power and all that stuff involved. So I'm, I'm thinking about yeah. these, these parents and, and just a, a, a quick story here because we're, we're wrapping up my uh, my daughter was um or my granddaughter sorry was was going to be in a uh, one of our church productions and had put a costume on and she felt really uncomfortable in the costume she wasn't quite sure why she was wearing that and so on and so uh the director uh, who happens to be my sister so my granddaughter's great aunt just sort of said well here's the part you're playing and here's why and and my granddaughter still didn't feel comfortable playing that particular part and uh, so I was talking with my son about it, and he said, I'm really proud of my daughter because we've told her, anytime you feel uncomfortable, you don't let any adult tell you otherwise. You're uncomfortable, you're uncomfortable. And um, I, I thought, well, now, so they're obviously, first of all, growing up in a very different world than I grew up in and you grew up in. But my, my son and daughter-in-law have been very persistent in teaching their children that no means no. And, um, and I think that's what a lot of parents are trying to instill in their kids now with bad touch and so on. So what are some of the, the quick things that you would say to parents, teach your kids these things, arm your okay. kids with these things? Yeah, no means no, absolutely. Um, uh, good touch, bad touch, absolutely. Stranger danger, absolutely. Um, uh, but also um, uh, family danger, since most abuse actually happens in mm. where you know someone. So, um, you know, it's an aunt, uncle, it's a cousin, it's an older brother even with a younger sister. So, so it's not just... Um, you know, stranger danger, but you also have to talk about your family members and what are the what's appropriate in family members, um, and and I I, de I definitely think that um, the uncomfortable challenge, what I call the uncomfortable challenge, is is correct uh, up until a certain age. And I'm trying to remember your grand this granddaughter. How old is she? Uh, she's ten. She's ten. Okay, yep. so she's starting to to me. She's starting to move to the age where. Um, she's not there yet, but when she gets into adolescence, then the word uncomfortable, I, I, yes, uh, I narrow it. But right. for, for a 10 year old, you know, birth to 10, even birth to 12, 13, every parent has to make this decision for their kid. Um, yeah, I think it's absolutely right to say, if something makes you uncomfortable, you're empowered to speak up and explain why it makes you uncomfortable. You know, um, I think that's part of it. Yep. Help her to explain or him to explain why they make, make them uncomfortable. They've explained it. They have that right. And they're only 10. They should not be put in a situation where they're uncomfortable, you know, unless and this moves into where I think we'll get um, as we move later in age and maybe 10, 11 is a cusp where we say, now, wait a minute. Why are you uncomfortable? And are you uncomfortable for the reason you say you are? Or is this an adversity that you actually ought to persevere through? So that becomes a separate conversation. Right. Um, 
uh, but anything that involves a child who may be in a private space with another adult, you know, that is absolutely, I'm uncomfortable. Uh, discomfort is the right word for that. Yes. Yes. Well, this is, there, there's so much to this and uh, we're going to, we're going to take one more pass at it with our next episode. And we're going to expand the discussion now to really understanding uh, the implications of trauma on our boys and our girls. And uh, so there'll be some review from, from this one. And, um, but I, I, Michael, I, as always really appreciate you and these two particular podcasts and next week too, I'm sure are just a little heavier than what we normally do, but they're so very, very important that this gets to the soul of our kids. And, and the last thing any parent wants or grandparent for that matter is to see their kids or their grandkids traumatized in any way, particularly sexually. So this has been so helpful. Tell us the name of your book again. Yeah, the book is called The Stone Boys, The Stone Boys by Michael Gurian, and you can go on Amazon, uh, barnesandnoble.com, wherever you get books, um, go into your bookstores, into your libraries. I don't know how many libraries have it yet, but you can certainly get it on Amazon. And then, um, and as you're about to say, Tim, on wonderofparenting.com, you're mm-hmm. going to see it, the cover of it and a link to various places to look at it. Uh, it is a book that I hope you will use in your classrooms. I hope you'll use it in your families. Uh, I mean, it's it's a novel that is a fast read and very intense, hard to put down. So I don't think you'll regret reading it as a novel. But also, um, uh, you know, I hope you'll use it with everyone because I, I mean it. I mean it for the good also. And, and it's a, a topic that uh, as parents and as grandparents, we do need to talk about. We need to be aware of it. It's an ugly part of life. And we want to protect our kids from it. So hopefully uh, you've received some insights from Michael uh, these last two podcasts. And we're going to go at it one more time. Uh, and then after uh, episode 61 is back to all of your great questions. And we've got some really good ones coming up here in the future. So, Michael, thank you. Thank you, Tim. Thanks, everyone. Th- thanks, everyone, for listening. And, and again, a best, big special thanks to our sponsors, uh, the Center of Place of Hope. And uh, they're a great resource to turn to should you ever need help in any of these areas. We will be back with you next time. Thanks for listening to the Wonder of Parenting podcast.